Well, good morning, everyone. This looks, again, a little bit different. Again, we're having to pivot in this season. Um, although it's wonderful, obviously, of course, that we can still do this um, and still be able to, in some ways, gather together, even though we're all separated from one another. But I'm grateful for all those of you that are able to still tune in and for the nine, ten of us that are sitting here in this sanctuary. All of you are now responsible to look really enthusiastic while I'm preaching. Okay? Every once in a while, just throw out an amen. Okay? Keep, keep us in this. Okay? <laughs> So this is the last week of our Seeds of the Kingdom mini-series before we hop into our Advent sermon series starting next week. And we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13, speaking about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And thus far, we've seen Jesus revealing some of these mysteries using very common language and imagery. So he knows the, speak- the people that he's speaking with. He, he's meeting them where they're at, and he's revealing realities to them, mysteries of this kingdom that perhaps would have been a bit surprising for them, or even at times disappointing for his listeners to hear. We saw this in the first week, that the kingdom of heaven is like good seed planted in good soil. It's, it's hearing, it's understanding, it's bearing the fruit of this kingdom and sowing more seeds. The kingdom of heaven, as we saw two weeks ago, is letting the weeds grow with the wheat. For whatever reason, this is the reality that we're in, and it's about leaving the ultimate judgment of evil in the sower's hands and letting him sow and let him sort it out when the time is right. The, the two need to grow and mature together because he will not let anything happen to his wheat. And then last week, we saw the kingdom of heaven is sometimes seemingly unimpressive. Like a mustard seed or, or yeast and dough, it has humble beginnings. It seems tiny and insignificant sometimes at first. Think of, of even Jesus himself, a, a rural Galilean teacher wandering around with a, with a group of, of, of people, a small crowd of people. It, it starts small and insignificant and seemingly unimpressive, but it's growing and it's maturing and it's transforming without us even realizing it. And in all of this, we've been asking ourselves throughout these weeks, how can I then participate in this kingdom even when my normal levels of comfort, control, and certainty aren't there anymore? When I feel outside of my comfort zone, when I'm I'm not feeling certain about anything moving forward, when I don't feel like I have control over anything, how might I yet participate in what God is doing, knowing and being certain and being comforted by the reality that he's in control? that comfort, control, and certainty belong with him. How might we yet in this season have a kingdom imagination? So we're looking at our final couple of parables this morning in Matthew uh, chapter 13. Again, two parables, similar to last week, that are very short but very connected with each other, that speak a truth together about this kingdom. So we're reading Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, starting at verse 44. Matthew writes this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So again, similar to last week, we're going to look at each parable one at a time and then ask the question, what is the mystery that Jesus is trying to reveal to us here in these parables? So starting with verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, 
just a little bit of context, your treasure in the ancient world was actually often hidden. This was a normal thing. You would often hide it or bury it to keep it safe, either hiding it in a clay jar or burying it in the earth. And by far, the ground was definitely the safest place to do this. It was, it was well known that, that people would hide their most cherished belongings in the ground. Even the rabbis would teach that the, the safest repository for money was the dirt, was, was hiding it in the earth. And that's in large respect because Palestine was an incredibly fought over piece of land in the ancient world. And so if you were, if you were in that time and you knew that at any point in time you might be caused to flee somewhere, you had to go, you had to leave potentially, you would want to hide your valuables somewhere in the ground and then hopefully one day know that you could come back and regain it. It was the safest place to leave it. So in this situation, what we likely have here is, is a peasant or a, a servant or some sort of a worker working in their master's field. Because of course, if they were working in their own field, they, they wouldn't be surprised to come across their own valuable, okay? So there's, there's a good chance that we're talking about a worker um, working in their master's field, and they're going about doing their job, plowing the field, going about their own business, and then suddenly, as, as Pastor Liz put it, they dig, 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 clunk, 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 and then suddenly they hit something hard. And, th and they discover that there's a treasure hidden beneath the soil. Now, this, this peasant servant knows that if he digs it up and he pulls it up out of the ground, immediately when he does that, it belongs to his master. He knows that, and he knows that the wealthy bugger would probably want to keep it to himself. And this, this, these were the kinds of stories that would flow around, um, the, you know, working class people all the time. They would come, they would think about these stories, they would talk about these kinds of narratives, and, and this was a once-in-a-lifetime kind, of, uh, kind of experience to come across an actual treasure in a field. It was like winning the lottery. So you'd be a fool to not take advantage of this and, and to sell everything you have in order to gain it. So the servant covers it back up again and then goes and invests all of his resources into this field. He gets rid of everything he has in order to buy this field so that he can keep this treasure. Why? Because this treasure that he's found is worth more than absolutely everything else that he has. This treasure that he's just found is worth more to him than everything else that he owns. And remember, he just came across this unexpectedly, okay? He came across, it was a surprise to him. He, he was just going about his normal business when it presented itself. And now all he wants to do is hold on to this treasure. He's, he's recognized the worth of it, and it's become the most important thing in the world to him. Okay, how about the second parable? Verse 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, at first, this seems fairly similar to the first parable, but there's some key differences here that I want to pull out here in this second metaphor that we need to recognize. So the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant now, a merchant who's looking for something. He's searching for something. So at first, what we had was a peasant who's on one side of the social ladder who comes across this treasure unexpectedly, out of nowhere. Now we have a businessman on the other side of the social ladder who's actively looking for a treasure, which is kind of neat to think about because remember last week in the parables that we saw last week, we had a man and a woman. Now we have a servant and a merchant. As if, as if Jesus is trying to emphasize to us that this kingdom is for everybody. 
It's for all kinds of people. And it comes to us in all sorts of different kinds of ways. Because for the merchant, to look for fine pearls was a pretty wealthy kind of trade. These would be pearls that were usually found either in the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf and, and would be worth a pretty hefty chunk of change in that day. But pearls also had this very special appeal in Palestine, and Will Barclay puts it this way. They, they were prized, of course, for their monetary value, but also for their beauty. There was something just really beautiful about a pearl, to the Israelites particularly, and, and for those in ancient Palestine. There was this aesthetic joy in simply possessing and, and looking for a pearl. So, so merchants would often scour the markets looking for these beautiful pieces of, of jewelry, looking for the, to find the perfect pearl. So a different situation, the second parable, yet here's the kingdom commonality between the two of them. Here's what brings these two parables together. When this merchant finally finds one, he finds a great pearl, a treasure of incredible value. He too goes away, sells everything he has, in order to gain it. Which wouldn't have been the normal thing necessarily to do, especially for a businessman. It's one thing to think of a peasant selling all that they have. They might not have that much. It's another thing to think about a wealthy person selling all they have to gain this one thing. So then what is the kingdom mystery being revealed to us here? I think it's this. That this kingdom no matter how one discovers it, no matter who discovers it, this kingdom encourages, if not demands, both a joyful and sacrificial response. That's how you know you've found it. It's, it's like that saying that the, the tree is known by the fruit. The response to the treasure is indicative of the treasure itself. And this kingdom when found, elicits a joyfully sacrificial response. In other words, this kingdom isn't one that gives you everything you want. This kingdom isn't one that offers you additional treasures. It's not this plus something else. It's not this pearl plus a whole bunch of other pearls. It doesn't make life easy and simple. It doesn't take away the burden of sacrifice. No, this kingdom, when truly found, this treasure is worth sacrificing everything else for. It doesn't take away sacrifice. It's worth sacrificing everything else for. The joy of the discovery that we see in the first parable combined with the, the eager curiosity of the second parable both lead to a willingness to give up everything in order to make this treasure their own. For both of these characters, these individuals, this treasure completely changes their lives. No matter what the discovery looks like, no matter who discovers it, the reaction is the same. Everything gets sacrificed in order to gain this precious thing. That's the mystery. That this kingdom is so shockingly life-changing. And not because suddenly all of our circumstances are better or because we're suddenly free from hostility and oppression, which is, which is what the Israelites would have been hoping for. Remember, that's what they were hoping for with the Messiah and God's kingdom coming, that they would be free from all of these hardships. No, it doesn't change necessarily our circumstances. It changes us. That's the mystery. It changes us. It completely transforms us. 
It changes the way that we normally changes the way we normally think about things. It it sometimes calls us to radical sacrifice. It transforms our own ideas of what's practical and what's valuable, and and sometimes leads us to make some seemingly irrational decisions. But it, because it reorients our desires, it changes what we value. It changes what we care about. Why were the servant and the merchant so quick to reorient their desires? Because they realized the incredible worth of what they'd just found. So it begs the question then, what matters most to us? What is our greatest priority in this life? Because you know, so many folks live life as if we're here to just do life the way we want to do, die, and then hopefully go somewhere better afterwards. But that's not what Scripture calls us to. We are called to invite that kingdom here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all the time, and yet we still haven't really grasped or appreciated how momentous this is, how the magnitude of this. Our most precious treasure cannot be in owning the perfect home or, or living our best life now or ensuring that our children can get all the best opportunities. Those are great gifts in and of themselves, but they can't be what drives us. For us as the church, the, it can't be this building. It can't be. It can't be the, the kind of worship that we have or, or the fancy technology that we use or the structures that we build our faith around sometimes, what we should or shouldn't do, what we should or shouldn't look like. That We care in everything so stinking much about what we look like. This past Wednesday, I got to interview Aaron Bart. He's the chaplain of, of Dort University. It was with the, the Scent Conference that we're doing. And he questioned, actually, why every Christian he speaks to in this season just wants things to go back to normal. Why, he said. Why would we ever want that? Why would we want the church to go back to the way things were? Again, we need to recognize and know these idolatries of, of comfort, control, and certainty. We as Christians should always be looking ahead, hoping in this season that by God's grace we won't stay the same, that we'll mature, that we'll grow, that we'll be more filled with the Holy Spirit, that we'll be more deeply aware of this treasure that we possess. Even yet in this season, that hasn't changed this treasure that we possess, and to be sacrificially grateful for it. The power of the kingdom and the joy of this kingdom is demonstrated in, in how our own lives are transformed by it. Because again, receiving the word, understanding it, and, and bearing the fruit of it is entering into a kingdom imagination where we know that things are ultimately not in our control. And we're okay with that. If not okay with it, actually joyful about it. This world belongs to God, as both Pastor Ed and Pastor Liz have mentioned. And we trust ourselves, we entrust ourselves into the farmer's hand, and we look for signs of his kingdom in order that we might still participate in it. And like the servant in the field, the kingdom can meet us in sometimes the most ordinary ways. One scholar tells the story of a monk named Brother Lawrence who spent 40-some-odd years of his life working in a monastery kitchen, 
serving food and making food for his fellow brothers. And he said this about life in the monastery kitchen, working amidst dirty dishes and plates and scraps of food. He said this, I felt Jesus Christ as close to me in the kitchen as I ever did at that blessed sacrament. See, when the kingdom gets a hold of us, it, it transforms the way that we approach even the most mundane of things. When we really grasp this kingdom seed and know what it is that, this, that we've been given, the whole world becomes a sacrament to us, a place where we can stumble across the work of Christ unexpectedly, where we can search for signs of the kingdom drawing near. How do I share with others that I possess the most wonderful thing in this world? How do I share that with others? Am I willing to give up everything for this treasure and to do it with joy? To give up my pride, my security, my fear of looking foolish before other people, my concerns of what others will think and what I'll look like, to give up control and be vulnerable. Because being vulnerable, actually, with a kingdom imagination, actually means that we're in a better position to be used by God, to see what he's doing, to hold on to what for us is absolutely essential. And I think in this season, I think we are being asked to regain what is absolutely essential. One of my preaching mentors, Daryl Johnson, some of you know him, years ago once shared with us a, a vision that he'd had. The Lord had given him two pictures that referred to the Western Church, the current state of the Western Church. And he described to us the first, which was this. It was that of a tsunami. Something that you, you can't ever tell where it's going to go or where it's going to land, but it's, it's a reaction out of the ocean. It's a reaction of something underneath the ocean. And we in the West, he said, are going through tsunami-like changes. There's so much coming at us, and, and the old ways of doing things aren't, aren't effective to us anymore. We can't depend on the same old structures anymore. It doesn't feel the same. And then the second image was that of a sanctuary or a temple. Collapsed. Rubble everywhere. Something to lament over. It was, it was just a, a mess of things. And standing in the middle of it all was a music stand. It was a music stand with a Bible. And he was told, this is all now what you have to go on. This is all you have to go on now. And it reminded me actually of a story that David Platt once shared. He's a pastor down in the States. He was invited, a mega church pastor, huge church, all the fancy fixings and everything. He was invited once to go to China and share the gospel, share share some teaching with uh, one of the underground churches out there, a number of the underground churches there. And so he arrived, and of course it was the kind of situation where they, uh, they couldn't actually show him exactly where they were meeting, you know, just in case, safety concerns. And so he was blindfolded at varying times, and it was in the dark, and he was taken through these little streets and back alleys and, and into this building and down hallways and down, up and down stairs. And finally he came to this little room that had, you know, 30 or 40 Christians huddled on little benches, with just a light bulb above them, every single one of them, a Bible in hand, hungry to hear the word, hungry to be taught, 
and perhaps in a weird and unexpected way. This is us in this season. This is all we now have to go on. And you know, never before have we been so like and so in a similar circumstance to all of our brothers and sisters who are around the world. Who for them, this is all they have to go on. The need to depend on the gospel seed and on one another. Which actually for the kingdom, I think, isn't a bad thing. Andrew Walls, who's a missiologist in Sierra Leone, wrote this, Never before has the church looked so much like the great multitude whom no man can number. Out of every nation and tribe and people and tongue, never before has there been so much potential for mutual enrichment and self-criticism as God causes yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. You know, there's, a, there's an old Dutch saying. I, I grew up seeing it written on a plate. Of course, it wasn't Dutch, so I always had to ask my mom what it meant, but it was written on a plate in my home. We had a little farmhouse out in Matsky Flats, and uh, it, it said this, when God closes a door, he opens a window. God has closed so many doors on us in this season. But he continues to open windows. Ones that we may never expect. Danny and I have an uncle. Um, I like to claim him as my uncle because I just love him so much, but it's really Danny's uncle. We have an uncle in Angola who works as a doctor at a hospital. And he's been there for 40 plus years and he's never actually received a certification from the government that um, certifies his medical, um, his, what do you call it, his, 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 his medical uh, Credentials, that's the word. <laughs> he's never been certified. So he's, he's, he's working there, and it's been, it's been fine. He's been able to work there, but he's never actually been certified fi- from the government. So to some extent, it, it might be illegal, but because he's Canadian, they've never wanted to certify him. And so he's, for 40 plus years of, of faithful service, he's been working in this hospital, and suddenly, just recently, he was invited to attend the inauguration ceremony of a new hospital up in the middle of the country with the president of Angola. Out of the blue, just out of, completely out of the blue. It's sort of like the kind of call where it's like, hey, you need to get on a plane right now because the president wants you here. So he went, and at this gathering, conversations ensued, and this president had, of, had, of course, been impacted by missionaries in his own childhood. And this hospital was, was being renamed after another Canadian missionary doctor, Dr. Strangeway, um, who had been there years before and had impacted this president. Da, da, da. Anyway, conversations happened. Next thing we know, the president's hearing Uncle Steve's story and saying, oh my goodness, we're going to fix this. And he literally orders somebody right then and there to say, pull up this guy's file. We're going to give him his credentials now. Also, I'm going to go down and visit his hospital. After 40 years, (laughs) as I mentioned last week, sometimes this kingdom, man, can feel like a long road of obedience in the same direction. And sometimes we don't always get to see the fruit of our labors. Sometimes sometimes it takes 40 years to get there, and, and sometimes we may be led to give up certain ambitions for it, or, or to sell, quote-unquote, some of our, pr- or actually sell some of our most prized possessions. We'll be led to discipline and self-denial. We'll, we'll be led to take up our cross and to follow Christ. But, but folks, there is nothing 
else in this world that grants us deeper peace, deeper joy, deeper hope than the treasure of God's kingdom. It's not dull. It's not life-sucking. It's not a waste of time. It's joyful sacrifice. Frederick Bruner says this, an investigation of the Christian missionary enterprise through the centuries will show that the spring of missionary action is joy. The joy of the discovery of Jesus Christ in whom are hid, in Paul's words, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge has always moved men and women into large, life-changing decisions and acts of renunciation. It's why C.S. Lewis titled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Life didn't get easier, necessarily, when he received Christ. But it certainly got more joyful. He had found the greatest treasure. The mystery of this kingdom is that in every season, no matter how one discovers it or, or maybe rediscovers it for the 15th time over, this kingdom generates a joyfully sacrificial response. No one tells the peasant or the merchant to go and sell their possessions. It's their natural response because the treasure says it all. It's not about what they're giving up, but what they're gaining and what they've already gained. This treasure changes everything. It transforms the way that we think and we hope and imagine. It's the most important part of who we are. It's the greatest reality that we know. Do we believe that? Yes, we're discouraged. We're frustrated. We're anxious. And eager. But we can yet be aware of this treasure and the simple joys that it brings. Because remember that there are others out there in this season who are existing without this treasure. So we continue to sow the seeds. We continue to participate in this kingdom. We continue to be missionaries, priests, and prophets. Even though most of the time we feel like the weak disciples, fishermen, spending all night out in the boats, casting out nets and never catching a darn thing. Our boats have cracks in them. Our nets have holes in them. We're not very good at fishing. But we go out anyways. We cast out our nets anyways. Because we know and we can find joy in the truth that even the tiniest of mustard seeds can have an incredible impact. The smallest windows of opportunity can open up for us. And who knows when Jesus himself might come along and tell us to toss our nets over to the other side. We exist as Christians, with a kingdom imagination. And in sowing the seeds of the kingdom, our joy flows out of the reality that our deepest treasure is knowing Christ.
the greatest mystery in all of these mysteries is the reality that the one who's telling us these mysteries is God himself. The greatest mystery is that it's God himself who's telling us these truths, who's trying to comfort us with these realities, who wants to affirm over and over again that he will not let the devil take a hold of us or uproot us, that he will not fail to watch over us in this season, that this world belongs to him and he will not cease to reveal his kingdom realities and purposes to us. We have the greatest treasure in this world because we have him. We have him. There's no greater comfort in this world. There's no comfort food or binge watching or, f- or family gathering or special event or opportunity. No door that can close on us without a window opening that reminds us of this incredible treasure that we have. The lamb who sits on the throne. The farmer who takes care of his wheat the king who's drawing his kingdom nearer and nearer and his sheep closer and closer. The king is on the move. He's coming. He's here. He's working among us, even still. And we have the privilege. We get to join in that with him. So may we be blessed with the eyes to see it the ears to hear it, the mind to imagine it, and the hearts to adore it. Amen. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit it may sink deeply into our hearts and our minds. And that is, as we continue through this season, Lord, that we would be more and more aware of this great treasure that we have. This treasure that we've received from you. That we are blessed to be in relationship with you. Strengthen us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us boldness. May we sow the seeds of your kingdom with joy. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.